0: Well, thanks for being here. This is practice for your mission trip to the Yukon Territory. You're all prepared at this point uh, when we send out the message to uh, join us in northern Canada for a winter mission trip. This is what it's like for them every, every day. But we're glad we can be here together today to worship the Lord. And we're going to return to the book of Deuteronomy and our preaching over the next uh, few months. So uh, please turn with me there to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 1 to 13. That's where we will be spending our time uh, together uh, this morning. Remember that uh, the last passages we looked at were uh, the Ten Commandments, and so we'll be picking up there in chapter 6 today. My uh, my great-grandfather taught me to play golf. Uh, I was privileged to know my great-grandfather at the time that he uh, first taught me to play golf when I was 10 years old or 11 years old. He had to be in his early 80s. He would played golf all his life and uh, he was uh, doing me uh, a kind favor by taking me to the driving range, not having any knowledge of the sport of golf. And it was an interesting endeavor because we got out there and he, he could still hit the ball pretty well. He was a big guy, six foot five, and he could still swat him and had a good swing and uh, he said, watch me kid, you know, in his gruff New England accent and he hit a few balls down the range and he started talking, now when you take the club back, you gotta get it in this position and put your feet this way and make sure your hips are pointed here, you know, and he was going through everything and I'm like bewildered standing there and he finally hands me the club, I'm going Yeah, now you do it, you know, and I got up there and I think I didn't even hit the ball, I just missed the ball the first 10 or 15 times I swung at it, and he's like, come on, you watched me hit the ball, didn't you? And So he said, here's what you need to do, and he walked me through it again, and I made contact, but the ball went this way, that way, and this went on for like 20, 30 minutes, and it was a disaster. It was just, uh, I know he regretted bringing me, he was about ready to take me and get a milkshake and call it a day, until finally he said, okay, I just want you to think of one thing, just one thing hit down on the ball, okay? Just hit down on the ball. And I said, okay. So I pulled the club back, and I hit it, and it wasn't the best shot of my life, but the ball went in the air, and it went fairly straight. And from that day forward, I fell in love with a game of golf. And what it took on that day with my great-grandfather was him kind of sorting through the clutter of a hundred things that you needed to think about the first time you learned to play a sport and reducing it down to the very essence of one thing to think about. And I know sometimes in our life, especially on our spiritual journeys, we can lose perspective and get distracted because it seems like there are a million things to know and a million things we have to do and do in a certain way. I think the Lord... I'm sure the Lord knows this about us. And certainly Moses, as he was retraining up a new generation of those that were being called to walk after the way of the Lord, recognized that what he needed to do was to reduce the essence of the call to our lives spiritually to very simple and straightforward things. And that, I think, is what we have before us in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Really, in, in my view, sick, uh, three major things that are extraordinarily helpful and concise summaries of the essence of what it means to live a good and long and fruitful spiritual life before the face of God. And so what I want us to see this morning as we look at this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is that the Lord gives his people basic tasks so they can have a long and meaningful and fruitful spiritual life. Would you listen as I read just a few of the verses that are going to get us started this morning from the beginning of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. There's are the first three verses we'll read together. Would you listen to God's holy and inerrant word? Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's pray together this morning. Father, would you help us as we lean into your word, as we hear from your spirit, as we um, look both inside of us, around us, and up at you, that uh, the time that we spend looking at these verses this morning will be fruitful to us in the ways that you intended it to be God that we will be able uh, to leave this place this morning with clarity and understanding the calling that you place on our life we pray this in Jesus name amen so if we're going to live a long and meaningful and fruitful spiritual life what does the Lord say to us about how that will happen well, the first thing he says comes from the first few verses of this chapter, and it's this, you must walk in the way of the Lord your God. You must walk in the way of the Lord your God. And there's two things that come out of those first three verses that I, I want to just look at for you. And the first one comes in verse 2, uh, and it comes uh, under the, the uh, uh, exhortation that we fear the Lord. The Lord. If you're going to walk in the way of the Lord your God, you must fear Him. Now that is, though it doesn't seem like it on the surface, a relational disposition. How are you going to position yourself in relationship to the Lord your God? Will you position yourself in authority over Him? Will you position yourself as His peer? Or will you position yourself as one who is in submission to Him? And that's this essence of this term, to fear the Lord. It doesn't call us to terror before the Lord, but it does call us to an appropriately respectful and deferential disposition toward Him. We don't sit in judgment of Him. We don't stand alongside of Him as a critic who critiques the things that he says to us and judges for ourselves, whether they are right or wrong, or good or bad. We position ourselves as one who are under his authority. We do that by fearing him. The second thing is more of a moral disposition. We do that then, the application of that is by keeping his statutes and his commandments. The statutes and commandments of the Lord are those covenant obligations that he is written to them about in the passages we looked at before Christmas in the 10 commandments those are the statutes and commandments of the lord that we fear they are the obligations that we willingly sign ourselves up to as his people these are the ways of god they are not the ways of man and in that sense just just to remind us the ways of god do not square with the culture they really never have, if you want to be honest about it. Culture and humanity, ever since the fall, has wanted to go its own ways, and it's taken, uh, it's taken its own ideas and perspectives, and it has done that. But the Lord has regularly reminded His people in different iterations throughout the course of the Scripture what is actually true. And every culture, every moment, every generation goes through a period of time where we test Those things and we go in our own ways and we find out usually pretty quickly that the ways that we're going our own ways do not square with living a long and fruitful and happy life. And it's interesting sometimes to stand back and watch how a culture does this and how they have to go through a process of figuring these things out. Even in our own day, we see that a little bit now. I've mentioned this before, but we have a culture that for many years, starting in the 1960s, preached the doctrine of sexual freedom. You can have absolute freedom sexually to do whatever you want to do and whatever way you want to do it. It started off with a maybe a conservative uh, application of that between a man and a woman, and now it's gone completely off the rails. So much so that even those in our culture who are not believers in God are recognizing that something is wrong. This doesn't work. It doesn't square with the reality of the experience we have. We're not happy. We're more depressed than ever. We have less relational satisfaction than ever. We produce fewer children, which God says is a blessing, than ever. And we're finding ourselves floating around in a world in a way that God has taught us over and over again will not lead to happiness as a culture. God says that if you would have happiness and a long life, and fruitful spiritual life. He should walk in the ways of the Lord by fearing Him and by keeping His commandments. Uh, one of the ways you can think about this is if you've ever traveled to a different country, you you know you get off the plane and the first place you got to go is through the passport control. Katie and I are about to head to Egypt next week, uh, a week from uh, so today actually, and you know, we'll have to get off the plane and go up to the passport control desk. And there is an officer of the state sitting there at the passport control desk. And you know you can position yourself in a lot of ways when you walk up to that passport control officer. You can be a punk. And I guarantee you, if you're a punk with a passport control officer and you refuse to uh, present your documents and you talk about things that are hateful to the country you're going into, you're not going to be passing that border. You're going to be turned right around and sent in the other direction. But here's the thing if you do that you miss the joys of entering that land you miss the opportunity to see the beauty of what is in that land and the culture that is in that land and that's in a sense what god is saying to us about entering this good condition of happiness and joy and the long and meaningful life in his presence is you can only pass through if your disposition is correct, and you are in agreement with living according to the ways of the land. Now, a question that some might have as they look at this, what if what if the way seems confusing to me? I guarantee you, when we get off the plane, we're gonna, the first things we're going to see are uh, letters in Arabic that are going to be very confusing. We don't speak Arabic. People are going to be speaking a different language. It seems confusing, and I just want to say, especially to you young people, you might say, well, I don't know. Christianity seems really confusing to me there's a lot to learn there's things I don't understand look every worldview is confusing every worldview presents you with ideas and practices and ways of living that aren't going to seem to make sense to you the question you have to do is you have to look at them and say do in the end they come to a place where they make sense and so, even if you're a little confused, even if Christianity doesn't make perfect sense to you right now, I would just say keep learning. You know, you learn so much the older you get. When the questions start to change and the things that you're pursuing start to change, life starts to look different and things start to make better sense. And so, endure, watch and walk and fear the Lord, by keeping His commandments. You must walk in the way of the Lord. The second thing occurs in verses 4 and 5, and it's summarized in this way. You must love the Lord your God. You must love the Lord your God. There is a a very famous verse uh, here embedded in verse 4 and 5, two verses, and they say this, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That is uh, known within uh, the circles of Judaism and, and those who have studied it as the Shema. It's a call of the Lord to the most essential commitment of the faith. It's prayed twice a day by devout Jews. Now there is an interesting conversation to be had about what the very best translation of that verse is. Verse 4, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's a couple ways that it can be translated. One way, which is represented here in the ESV, is read in, in a sense as a statement of monotheism. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or maybe in a most literal sense, here, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one God. And that was important contextually because remember the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt. It was a land of many gods. It was a land that preached that there were different gods that had to be worshipped in different ways and had different powers over you. And so as this is declared to the people, it's definitely underlining in a sense that no, it's not many gods, it's a single God. It is a great God, a monotheistic God that transcends the idea of God in every single culture. If you're going to find peace and happiness, Israel, understand that your God, Yahweh, the Lord, is one great God. Now, another interesting translation of this verse, which in its own way is just as true and just as relevant, is emphasizing not so much the singularity or the monotheism of God, but the uniqueness and distinctness of one God. In that sense, it would be translated, Hear, O Israel, our God is Yahweh, Yahweh alone. And that verse If you you translate it that way, it, it pushes back against this pluralistic idea of worshiping gods for their own attributes that have been taught them in Egypt. And remember, Israel was going into a land of many supposed gods. And what is being preached to them as they prepare to enter this land is that if you position yourself as a worshiper of many gods, of many varieties, which will surely be offered to you, you will be destroyed. Because these many gods will pull and stretch you to pieces. And so, Israel, our God, Yahweh, our Lord, is one utterly unique and distinct God who reigns over all in everything. And that became the prayer. Of the Israelite people from that point forward every single day our God is one God it was the marker the thing in a sense that separated them from the nations around them it goes on in verse 5 to talk a little bit about what you do with that conviction in your life it says there you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Before I talk about the heart and soul and might part, notice what it says. It's not you shall think about your God this way, although that's true. It's that you shall love the Lord your God. And so here is the appropriate spiritual emotion that should undergird our lives. We should have a loving disposition to the Lord our God that enables us to put into play the whole of our life in the service of this God that we love. And that's what these terms are driving at. Some people take uh, verse 4 to be kind of like a Greek way of thinking about the human condition. Well, you have a heart and you have a soul and you have a body that's not what it's about it's about your everything you should love the lord your god with your everything yes the heart in the hebrew mindset was a little bit more like the mind in the way that we think about it it spoke to the inner being of a person the soul, the nefesh, was a, a, a phrase, a, a word most literally that spoke about your gullet, your gut. That thing deep, deep down inside of you, your desires, your, your personhood. And the term for might there, strength or power is just whatever resource you have, put it into play toward loving the Lord your God. Everything you have, use it to demonstrate love for the Lord your God. And that's what we do when we love someone, isn't it? Anyone here who is a parent and you have children, the things you do for your children, you can't understand uh, those things until you actually do it as a parent and you make the sacrifices as a parent and you... Bear the burdens and you're willing to give so much up to them because why? You love them. And so Moses is underlining here that if you would have joy and satisfaction and happiness in the land that you're going into, it needs to be framed as a love of God. Now, some might say I I struggle to love him. It's not the emotion I feel like I have toward God. What if I, I struggle with love? What if I feel kind of alone or distant from God? Well, the first thing I'd say to you is start there and say that to Him. You know, if your marriage is struggling, uh, when I sit with people to do marriage counselings and they, f- and they feel distant, From each other the the first thing that has to happen is you've got to get in the room and start talking you can't get anywhere until you get in the room and start a conversation that goes deeper than you've ever gone and so if you feel like you're you're struggling with loving god or understanding what it means to love god you got to get in the room with him you got to talk to him you got to yell at him you got to let out your anger and your frustration you got to tell him where you're not sure that he has demonstrated this love to you, do it. That's what the psalmist does all over the pages of the Bible. And it's that that creates the depth that you need to be in relationship that feels much more like a growing love. We have a culture that doesn't understand this for sure. Um, The summer, uh, one of the top movies of the summer was the Barbie movie. And of course, our culture grabbed onto it because it was reminiscent of our childhood and Barbie dolls and all the things. But the movie was actually way, way more profound than that. And if you haven't seen it, I don't endorse everything in it. There's a lot in it about the culture we live in that uh, I I wouldn't agree with. But there's a question in it. And that question got summarized in the song that was sung at the end of the movie written by an artist named Billie Eilish. She's a young uh, singer, she's not a Christian, she doesn't have a Christian worldview, she doesn't believe in God, but she sang the most profound song, and some of you might have heard it. The song is titled, What Was I Made For? And here's some of the lyrics. I used to float, now I just fall down. I used to know, but now I'm not sure. What was I made for? What was I made for? Because I I don't know how to feel, but I want to try. I don't know how to feel, but someday I might. Someday I might. What was I made for? You know, it's applied to a Barbie doll, but what it's really crying out about and longing about is how our young people are growing up in this world who are looking at the world they're growing up in, looking at themselves and asking the question, what am I supposed to be? Who am I? Am I what the world says I am or am I something else? I don't know. And the answer that we give as believers in Christ is that you were made uniquely and beautifully in the image of God, to bring Him glory and to do good? Christianity has an answer for that question. And the question is, are we giving it to the people who are asking it? So if you're struggling with loving God, you're struggling with understanding how He positions Himself toward you in such a way that you can love Him, I would say prioritize being in relationship with him for a season and see what happens. See what happens. Structure your life for a season to live in such a way that you are in relationship with God and I think you'll meet him there. So we should walk in the way of the Lord our God. We should love the Lord our God. And finally, we must convey convey the heart of the Lord our God to the next generation. Verses uh, 7 to 9 and then 20 to 25 underline these things. Look there at those verses. Speaking to the Israelites, you shall teach the commandments, these great truths. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then skip down to verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then... You shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that He might preserve us alive as we are to this day. Now there's two categories of things here, and I'm going to break them up this way. How should we convey the heart of the Lord our God to the next generation, whether they ask or not? And the way we should do that is through diligent teaching and continual modeling. What I mean by diligent teaching is what he means when he says you should talk about the things of God in your house and along the way and at bedtime and when you wake up in the morning. Talk about the things of God. Frame your life in the way of God and talk about it whether your children are annoyed about it or not. Because in doing so, you are teaching them something. In the same way, model it. Bind them on your hand, on your face, on your house, and on your gates, these truths of God, because that's what your children will see the most. It's like, it's like a road sign. Even a, a child that's never taken a road test can watch the traffic lights and the signs, and they start to figure it out. And these are the things that we should do, whether or not our children are asking us about it, whether or not they're in agreement with it, whether or not they like it, or think it's right or good. Because as they grow, the things that we've taught them and the things that they've seen may start to make better sense. I was watching a show, it's a show I got into when I had COVID a few years ago. I was laying in the hospital with nothing to do and in my bed, and I got into the show called Life Below Zero. And it's about living in a a world like this, uh, (laughs) off the grid, um, and how these people do it. And there's a dad in that show who um, has his children uh, with him for stretches of time out in the wilderness. And all he does is he, talk, he talks about how to live there. And he shows them how to live there. And there was this great scene in one of the episodes recently where they were hunting. And for them, hunting is sustenance. If they don't, if they don't achieve the kill, they don't eat. And he took his 10-year-old son out to hunt with him. And he taught him how to shoot. And they came around the corner, and they saw the most amazing moose just standing there within gun range. Now, what I would have done as a dad is I'd have pulled out my gun and shot the thing. But this dad took the gun, and he put it in the hands of his son, and he helped him line up the shot, knowing that once they hit this moose, they would eat all winter. And his son missed. What I would have done at that point is grabbed the gun, and shot He said, "Let's do it again, son. I missed too." And he cocked the rifle and he shot and he missed. and the moose took off. In that moment for me, I would have yelled and stomped my feet and screamed and said, "Why didn't you listen?" But what he did is he got down on his knee, and he put his hand on his son's face, and he said, "It's okay. We all miss." And he took his son back to the village where they were and they loved him. And he taught him something that day about what it means to be loved and a part of a family. Even though his son had failed in the task. Your children need to learn whether they want to or not. Now once in a while, as verses 20 to 25 tell us, they may actually ask you. What do you say when they ask? And it's framed here as this way. When your son asks you in times to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Let me just make that relevant to our life. When your daughter, your son comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, why do we go to church? Why do you do this? Why are we here when we could be at home sleeping on a Sunday morning? When they ask, what should you say? And look what it says. The very first thing, say to your son, we were slaves in Egypt. We were under the power of an oppressor. And what is that oppressor? It's sin for us. The point he's making is tell the story of God's grace. I was a sinner and this was the oppression I had in my life but God entered my life and he changed my life and he brought me out and he put my feet in a new place. That's what you tell them. You don't weigh them down in that moment with all the rules, you tell them the story of God's grace. In your own life, they may or may not listen, but they won't be able to say that they didn't hear that God was a gracious God. And so we're called to walk in the way of our God, we're called to love the Lord our God, we're called to convey the heart of our God to the next generation. But what if we fail? What if we don't do these things? And maybe the better question is, what do we do when we fail in doing these things? It says, interestingly, in verse 25 of this passage, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He's commanded us. If we fail, do we lose our righteousness? The answer to that is no. Because our righteousness is not found in us. It's found in Jesus. And the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 couldn't be more explicit. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're not saved By walking in the way of the Lord, loving the Lord our God, and conveying the heart of the Lord to the next generation. We do those things because we have been saved. And even if we fail in them or struggle with them, we know that we are the people of God who have been covered by His grace and loved by our Father. It's an astonishing blessing. It is an astonishing blessing. It's what J.R.R. Tolkien called a eucatastrophe. What is a eucatastrophe? He wrote about this after he'd written Lord of the Rings in a little book he wrote called On Fairy Tales, in which he described and explained what he was trying to do in writing the story of the Lord of the Rings. And he said this, The consolation of fairy stories like Lord of the Rings The joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, is that it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of the deliverance. What it denies is universal final defeat, and insofar as this, it is Evangelium, the good news. The giving of a fleeting glimpse of joy. Joy beyond the walls of the world as poignant as grief. The eucatastrophe. The greatest singular eucatastrophe in the history of humanity was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. A catastrophe of good for me and for you. Made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ so that We walk in the way of the Lord. We love the Lord. And we convey the heart of the Lord to our children. Let's pray. Father, would you help us in these ways? We are sinners. We struggle. We're weak. We don't know how. Sometimes we don't have the motivation. And yet, Lord, you come back to us time and time again like that father did in the show, and you put your hand on her face, and you say, it's okay, I love you. Father, help us to feel that love from you, and to love you in return, and to talk about that love as much as we can, wherever we can, however we can, so that our children, the next generation, will carry on in the faith that will redeem them. Father, Bless the worship of your people. Be with us as we come to this table of catastrophe of gospel truth. Fill our hearts to come in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.